0: Hey, this is Joseph and I'm speaking to you on April 8, 2015 uh, from my office here in my home in Philadelphia. And I'm recording this before I conduct the first interview that I've done in several months and I thought I'd say a few words to explain why there haven't been any interviews in a while. Uh, I actually did record one back in September of 2014. But Unfortunately, I couldn't use the interview because the woman I spoke to, who was a nurse, felt that she was too frank and too candid in the interview and that it may negatively affect her later in life since she has a distinctive name and she said things that that could professionally be troublesome. Uh, It's unfortunate because it was a really excellent interview that was filled with a a lot of crucial information for sexual health and I think that, that some people really could have benefited from it. Uh, The internet has uh, vast amounts of information available to the individual, however much of that information is complete garbage and it's nice to talk to someone who can point you to the resources that may be helpful. And I think that this would have been especially beneficial to young women, but alas, uh, the interview could not be used. Um, After that, uh, I dealt with um, my father's uh, cancer uh, my father was Joseph J. Gervasi, and he had been sick for a while, but was diagnosed with cancer on June 19th of 2013. And I remember that date distinctly because I had just completed the interview with Bobby Startup when my mother called me to give me um, the results of the test that he had had. And over the course of that, uh, little over a year, um, he degenerated pretty rapidly, and he died on December 3rd of 2014. I just wanted to say a few words about my father before we go on to the interview. Uh, My father was born in 1946 in South Philadelphia to a working-class Italian family, uh, Sicilian to be precise, and he later moved to South Jersey. He met my mother, Mary, whom he later married and uh, was with his entire life uh, at the age of 13. Uh, My mother fortunately is still alive and uh, my father uh, joined the army just out of high school he was a paratrooper, he served two tours in Vietnam, he was a combat veteran, he later um, he he continued his connection with the, the military, he was always tremendously proud of his service and later jumped with uh, French paratroopers uh, several times in France because he had made connections to uh, several uh, people involved in the French military, um, and he was a part of local 150. I'm sorry, uh, local 172 uh, laborers union out of Trenton, New Jersey, uh, through all of his working life. And uh, my father could be a, a very difficult person at times. Uh, But he was absolutely an American character, and um, um, it was thanks to him that I was introduced to two things that were very important to me through my entire life. Uh, At a very young age, uh, he introduced me to horror films and science fiction films, and uh, he also instilled into me um, a love of reading, and I've uh, kept these uh, passions through my entire life. And um, I miss my father every day, and I, I know that I will, will always miss him. And it was because of, all, because of that and, and some other things going on that I haven't had the opportunity to speak with anyone for a while. Um, but now I feel that uh, it's time to get back into having some conversations. Uh, I thank you for your time in listening to this, and I hope that you enjoy the forthcoming interview. Those that have preceded it, and all of those going forward. Thanks a lot. This is Joseph Trevesi. I'm here with Dave Bass-Brown, and we're recording this interview on April 8, 2015, on a rainy evening in beautiful Roxborough. Uh, this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hi, Dave. Hey. Thanks for coming down the street to my house to do this interview. Yeah, I love Roxborough. <laughs> yeah, it's the best. Not as good as East <laughs> Falls, though. Yeah, it would, you know uh, we're practically neighbors. Yeah, this is true. Um, well, let's start with the uh, with young young that you are recording. Um, okay. with young Dave, uh, were you born here in Philadelphia?
1: Yeah, uh, I was born in 1962. Actually, I was born in Maryland because that's where uh, my my dad was at the time, he uh, he used to manage this grant d- department store, mm-hmm. which is where I got a lot of my records from as as a youth. But yeah, my whole family's from Philly, and we lived in East Oak Lane, and we lived in Mount Airy. And then when my dad got higher up into the grant company as a district manager, he, he bought a little house in Ballakinwood in, in 1966 for $24,000, mm-hmm. which at the time was probably a lot of money, but now it's probably worth... Like a uh, half a million dollars. You didn't inherit the house. No, he. My parents ended up sp- splitting up when I was twelve or so, and they sold the house for fifty thousand dollars. So mm-hmm. they thought that they really. Well, they did out. double their money. The yeah. Way. So. So yeah, that's where I, I I pretty much grew up in in Philly my whole life. Okay. So what was young
0: Dave like? I'm talking prior to any of this punk stuff oh. coming down the pike. But uh, what were you like before
1: then? I mean, when I was a kid, I I took in. Interest in um, AM uh, AM radio uh, in I guess in the '60s, uh, you know, there was a lot of cool songs being played all the time, and I was kind of into the Beatles. I, I started getting into the Beatles in I believe it was first grade when I saw Hey Jude uh, per, uh, being performed on on the Dick Cabot show, and it was a real a real like mind blowing experience. It was like so. Uh, it, exciting to see the beatles play uh hey Hey jude and revolution Mm on 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 television and then my mom got me this beatles album from the uh i believe it was the pen fruit uh supermarket in narberth and i i i I started to read like the beatles books and stuff and i was really into the beatles and uh, buying beatles records and then I used to always go to a, a Mad's record store in Ardmore at the time, which had a lot of Beatles records, and I I, I remember buying my first 45 there, which was "Hello It's Me" by the Naz, mm-hmm. which kind of sounded at, at the time in, in first grade. I, th- I thought it sounded you know better than the Beatles, so I was into that and. You know, you know, playing the Naz and the, uh, the the Beatles, anything that sounded like the Beatles. Did you know that Naz was from Philadelphia?
0: Was from the region that you were living in at the time?
1: Not at the time. I had no clue who the Naz were or to, uh, Todd uh, Rundgren or, oh, or any anything about it. I just knew I liked I, I liked the record and it was a cool song and it was pretty hip. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I I started playing the drums because that's what Ringo did, and I I was starting. I, I took uh, drum lessons and I. Uh, I think I got a little drum set at at, uh, at the Kitty City in Ardmore. They had these little toy drum sets you can get. And I, I think I, you know, banged away on it pretty much. And I remember listening to, uh, I would always kind of pr- practice along the cartoons. Like uh, uh, the Archies had a really mm-hmm. cool song, a lot of cool songs in it. The Archies cartoon and, you know, um, uh, you know, the Munsters and uh, Milton the Monster had really cool songs. And, you know, A Courageous Cat. And, 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 I, and I, I actually found out uh, years later that, that Pure Hell did a, a cover version of the the Courageous Cat oh, theme. Oh, no shit. Because you know, no no. they were all, all into that yeah. stuff. So yeah, I started getting in, into, into music pretty early on, like in first grade. This was in the late 60s. I started playing the drums. I started playing in the school bands and, you know, listening to AM and...
0: So you were getting a more formal lesson. It wasn't just you rattling away, but I guess as you became in the school bands, you were actually learning, you know, technique and and proper proper drum playing.
1: Yeah, I was learning how to hold the sticks the old-fashioned way, you know, traditional grip, and uh, learning how to read notes and play uh, rudiments and how to read and play along with the whole band. And, Mm -hmm. you know, after a while, I started getting, you know, to be okay enough to be in the school band. And I kept playing ever since. Did you retain your record collection
0: from, from then to the present?
1: Oh yeah, I kept pretty much all, all my Beatles records. My, I would, and in fact, my grandmother, she worked at Sears and she would always br- uh, bring me records. And I remember when the Tommy album uh, came out You know, by The Who, it was, it was kind of an expensive album. So I remember she she got a discount on it and you know brought me that album and I, I thought it was really cool you know t- you know to be a, a little kid with headphones and you know listening to the Who you know mm-hmm. and so yeah and my you know grandparents would always buy me albums and so yeah I I, I kept a lot of those albums right. still you don't seem like the type of
0: person who when, when punk came along later was year zero and getting you know shit canning everything
1: that, oh, that no. preceded it. No, I I always listened to the Beatles even during the whole whole punk thing, even though a lot of people hated that kind of that kind of music. Right? Like, yeah. You know, didn't the Sex Pistols guy get, you know, kicked out of the band for, for liking the beat like the first guy. What was the guy's name? Like Glenn or, Matlock. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I don't I don't remember what the, what the story was supposed to be. But I think uh, even Johnny Rotten Blyden later admits to loving like Vandergraph Generator and, right, right. and and these other bands that uh, you know, were clearly not punk bands.
1: Yeah, but yeah, I, I was always into like kind of you know a British invasion kind of stuff. That anything that sounded like the Beatles and I remember as a kid in uh, the early '70s, I remember when uh, uh, the Raspberries came out, and I thought they were r- really great because they had a real a real Beatles kind of a sound, and Eric Carmen had a really great voice. Yeah, you know, you know, and uh, Badfinger, I like them a lot. It sounds very Beatly yeah. Yeah, yeah, they were on Apple and. Yeah. They were like the next step after the Beatles. You know, when the Be- uh, Beatles broke up, like you, st- you still had had Badfinger to sort of take their place. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and even uh, some of the ELO stuff kind of sounds like uh, oh, yeah. like them
1: as well. But kind of sounds
0: sort of beatly for the seventies.
1: Oh yeah, and, and the Hollies. I remember the Hollies were were pretty big then. You know, yeah, they all they had that uh, Manchester kind of sound, which was sort of like a. You know the Manchester groups were sort of like the you know parallel of the the Liverpool groups. Mm-hmm. You know they all kind of happened all all around the same time. You know there and all those groups were in, into like the Everly Brothers kind of harmonies and um, uh, those kind of chord changes like Del Shannon. You know, so yeah. Did you have any interest in Prague at the time? Well, l- later on, like when I got a little older, maybe. Around 12 years old, I think I was in seventh grade, and I I started playing in a, a little band with in 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 Ardmore again. It, like Ardmore is a very important place. Mm-hmm. Um, I played in a band with the son of Astrid Gilberto, and the kid's name. Well, you know, she did. She had that big hit, "A uh, Girl from Ipanema," mm-hmm. and the kid's name was uh, uh, Marcelo La Sorsa and I guess his dad married Astrid Gilberto, or he he may have been her her manager, and they lived in Ardmore. And I started playing in a in a band with him when I was twelve in 1974, and we started playing stuff like uh, Yes and King Crimson and you know more complicated stuff. And, um, and it's kind of around the time I I, I I began to smoke pot because. Mm-hmm. My my parents split up at the time, and my so my brother and I kind of fell in with this crowd of older kids that were smoking weed and doing drugs, and I guess smoking pot. You know, went along with you know listening to groups like uh, King Crimson and Yes and prog rock and.
0: Yeah, I guess there was a lot to get lost in, and the songs were really long. Yeah,
1: oh, like you had your like you know whole side of the song and. It was like, oh wow, man, this is great. <laughs> did you record any of your prod stuff? I wish I did. I would love to hear it. Unfortunately, not. Uh, so yeah, I, I started doing that and getting into more like complicated, a um, little complicated uh, drumming, I guess you could say. Like, you know, learning stuff by uh, Jethro Tull and King Crimson, and yes, I was I, I was really into Bill Bruford at the time. He was he was the original drummer from Yes, and the first King Crimson drummer, uh, Mike Giles, was a real big influence, and you know, and I played in some other sort of those kind of bands in high school, and I, I guess in 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 high school, the level, I guess you would you know judge somebody about you know how how good they were on how how they could play a Yes song or a Frank Zappa song. Mm-hmm you know like the you know complication of of the songs were right. like a judging of how good good you were mm-hmm. so and and you know plus i was playing in the school band still and then um and then i remember you know reading about uh, you know back then the only way you, you you could really find out about stuff was uh reading about you know uh reading magazines like you know trouser press and I was reading a magazine called Ballroom Blitz and 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 Bomp, and that's kind of how how I started to learn about punk. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to stores like Third Street Jazz in Philly, and there was a store in Ardmore called Plastic Fantastic, which was right near the Bryn Mawr train station. It, it's long gone now. It was like a little store run by a husband and wife, and they and and and, and they were the first people to import like punk singles in, into the area. I remember getting the first Police 45, you know, be, before it came out here, I got uh, the, the the jam. Uh, and they would have these in, in-store a- appearances with, with with the police, and only, like, eight people would, would show That's up. That's crazy. And I yeah. remember, you know, standing next to Sting and just, you know, talking <laughs> to him, and he was really bored, and, you know, there was no one there, and I thought it was pretty cool, mm-hmm. you know, and I had him sign my police import 45, you know. And Do you still have it? Yeah, I still I still have it. It just says Sting on it, mm-hmm. you know. I, I think I tried to sell it on eBay once, but it didn't sell, and I'm glad it didn't sell, you know, because yeah. I'm glad I kept it. Mm. so yeah so I, I started getting into punk and i started to read about groups from from boston in Bomp magazine had a whole article about uh, boston groups and i was reading about dmz so i bought you know the dmz ep at plastic fantastic and um uh, and then you know one of the workers at plastic fantastic told me about this great new band that she saw at this great club called the Hot Club mm-hmm. in Philly and she was you know going on and on about this band uh, called uh, called the Bloodless Pharaohs and she was like wow this is the greatest band in the world and she actually played me this cassette tape of the, of the Bloodless Pharaohs in the store and I thought it was really cool and she said I, sh- I should check out this club called the Hot Club and I was probably I don't know 16, 17 at the time and you know, somehow I, you know, found the club and I saw this band called the uh, called the Bloodless Pharaohs, and it was the the most incredible thing I ever saw in my life. But why don't you describe what the
0: hot club was like? Other interview subjects have, have mentioned it as well, but I, yeah. I can't ever presuppose that a listener has listened to the other one. So talk a little bit about the hot club and then what the band was like when you saw them there, and and also for you going into this place, right.
1: What was the environment like? Oh uh, Okay, well, well, the hot club apparently was run by this guy David Carroll who had run other clubs before I think one was called Artemis but he was the he was the first guy to bring I guess uh, new wave and punk bands and into Philly and the hot club was located at 21st and, and South Street which back then this was in the late this was like 1977. No, I think it was more like 1978 when it when it opened, but I'm not sure uh, the exact date. But when I went there, I believe it was 1978 or 1979. And back then, it was a, kind of a it was kind of a um, a seedy part of town. It wasn't all you know built up yet with all. all You know, these uh, yuppie condos and expensive Mm -hmm. stores and everything. It was kind of run down. It was cheap. And I'd never been there before. And uh, I I, I may have brought a friend of mine from from high school, this kid. um, He was the only other kid that was sort of into weird music and punk bands. He was was really into the Boomtown Rats Mm -hmm. a lot. And I never heard of them until I met him. And so, anyway... Him and I drove down. This is probably right after I got I, I, I got a car. Or and you're at, coming down from where are you living at? I that? was probably living in Gladwin because my mom rented some cheap house in Gladwin. In the, and there's actually a, a there was a uh, kind of a poor part of Gladwin back then, which n- n- no longer exists. Uh-huh, it's all right. condos now. But you know, back then she she rented a little house in uh, Gladwin, probably cost her three or four hundred dollars a month. So. My friend and I drove, drove down in my old, uh, I had a 1966 Plymouth Fairlane and we drove down to the hot club and went into this club and they didn't even ask us for ID or or anything. And we just paid our $3 or however however much it costs. And we, and we saw the bloodless Pharaohs and, it it just blew our our minds because we never had ever been to any kind of punk club or that kind of environment. It was it was real dark. Everything was painted black or red. I forget, and all these weird like punk kind of people were there. And had a really cool cool vibe to it. It was really underground, and uh, I guess it it was probably com- comparable to if um, uh, somebody in uh, Liverpool you know went to the cavern and and saw the beatles in you know 1961 it was mm-hmm. it was that kind of scene where like like you knew you were kind of clued in into something like that yeah. that uh, nobody else was was into and we and we, and we saw the bloodless pharaohs with uh, uh brian setzer and his brother were in the band and i mean it was it's hard to de- uh, describe the the music it was like a hybrid of like punk and rockabilly and like weird kind of Roxy music kind of stuff. And, you know, Brian kind of played a real sort of, uh, kind of a jazzy kind of rockabilly style. And, um, it was just cool, you know, really cool stuff. And, um, you know, the lead singer had a very uh, monotonous kind of a voice, like a low monotonous voice. And they, and they dressed, they kind of had these really cool haircuts, sort of like these pompadours. And they wore sort of like, uh, Rockabilly kind of clothing, and it was it was it was just a really neat experience. It's so time.
0: very different from the style of the of the day in in you know mainstream society of you know blood, oh, yeah. dried hair or whatever. Um, and later they became the Stray Cats. So right, right. So how much of how much of Stray Cats DNA was in Bloodless Pharaohs? I mean, was it a name change or was it a significant change of of membership?
1: Well, the Bloodless Pharaohs actually did play a song. Uh, I forget the title, but it ended up being a um, a, a stray cat song called uh, "Storm the I- I- Iranian Embassy," which mm-hmm. was kind of a dumb title. But at the time of the Bloodless Pharaohs, Brian and two other guys, and in fact, I think it was Brian and his brother and some other guy, or it was probably the three guys from the Bloodless Pharaohs formed uh, this rockabilly band called the Top Cats, which was like a side project of the of the Bloodless Pharaohs because. Mm-hmm. David Carroll from, from the Hawk Club managed the the, the the Bloodless Pharaoh so since they were in, in in Philly so much they they formed this other band called the Top Cats that played at this other club called Dobbs mm-hmm. JC Dobbs which is now the legendary Dobbs he yeah, become legendary <laughs> but you know back then it was just like a seedy hole in the wall on South Street and it was run down and grimy and You know that's that's when South Street was real cheap, and you know none of these corporate yeah no Gap no Gap stores no McDonald's no KFC McDonald's with the rainforest painted
0: on the side. I don't know if it still has that, but yeah.
1: So yeah, so so Brian had already had already formed the Top Cats that were playing all rockabilly stuff, and uh, David Carl was uh, managing them, and I think they recorded a couple songs that ended up on this um, uh, Marty Thau compilation that, that came out like too late. Like I think the Hot Club closed by then and the Bloodless Pharaohs were already over. Um, so, and then I think one of the managers from the Hot Club or I, I think, you know, Bobby Startup had some kind of um, was helped get, you know, Brian over to England, you know, to form the Stray Cats. And I think his 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 brother was supposed to go and it didn't work out and they got into a huge fight. So Brian just got these other guys to go and they, you know, formed the Stray Cats in England. And, you know, within six months had like a, a number one hit hit yeah, record, yeah, which, yeah. you know. But I guess I can say, yeah, I got to see Brian successor before he, you know.
0: That is fantastic. Yeah, it was pretty cool. What what for you was the the appeal of here this this new music that was coming forward much right. kind of simpler, maybe spikier than, yes, or King Crimson or Gentle Giant or whatever. Uh, what for you as as music fan, what was the appeal of these new sounds coming in at that time?
1: Uh, I think I became like disgruntled, or you know, like you know, back then, like. There was a weird time. It was right in between, like the Prague hippie era and the punk era. They they kind of overlapped, and there was a certain group or a certain you know family from Philadelphia area that was uh, booking. You know they were you know concert promoters. You know I won't you know mention their names, but they owned the Electric Factory, and they were a family of let's say uh, and they so you know there were this a real prominent kinwood Gladwin family whose name I will not say on tape but you know they were integral in you know promoting this real like uh how 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 can you say it like drug you know drug culture of like hippies and smoking pot and concerts and they encouraged all all these young people to camp outside in Ardmore, you know, you know, to wait for, uh, you know, Jethro Toll tickets, uh-huh. and you know, and it was all about smoking pot, and you know, they this you know family really encouraged a lot of drugs. And pot smoking, and they didn't care if some kid was going to OD on drugs or smoke pot and get crazy. Or and when
0: you say family, I mean you mean literally an actual family. You yeah, know, family. they're a
1: group of men, uh, three brothers, who kind of controlled the whole, you know, Philadelphia uh, concert, you know, tickets and uh, uh, promotion. Who are still active. I think the son runs it, or they sold out mm-hmm. to some big corporation. So anyway, so you had like these you know pot smoking hippies which i unfortunately got caught up in you know playing king crimson and yes and then i just kind of got like you know tired of it It, because it was a big scam you know and it it was clouding up your mind with drugs and then all of a sudden you know you know you i I just started getting in into these shorter songs that were you know to the point and Mm -hmm more you know poppy more you know beatlesque or uh, punk or you know uh you know you know handmade they were all like you know limited edition 45s and it looked cooler and you know the hair was like cooler shorter like like the clothing wasn't just long hair and jeans and flowing beads you know (laughs) it was a lot you know cooler clothing you know more mod i guess you can say because i was i was getting into the jam and that whole kind of you know british mod kind of look with you know the button down shirt and you know quadrophenia had had come out Mm -hmm. then and people were you know kind of getting more clean cut i i guess it was did you
0: shift away from from drug use or shift into different drugs or how, how did you come along how did you come to that
1: yeah i i actually shifted away from pot more into like uh I guess you, you you can say stimulants So, amphetamines yeah, yeah, speed right everybody started taking these things called Preludin they were like this these diet pills that would you know keep you up all day and night and and the hot club was kind of famous for um this drug called uh, crystal meth it was like handmade like it was cheap like speed that you would snort and mm-hmm. it was horrible it would just you know keep, keep you awake and make you crazy and like i remember you know, I was in maybe 11th grade, and I would just, you know, snort some with some friends and just be up all night and then, you know, go to school the next day and feel horrible, and it was crazy. Did your parents
0: know that you were up to this business? Oh, no,
1: they had no clue, because my, you know, my mom and dad split up, and my mom was working, or she was, you know, she was, there was no, like, you know, parental supervision at all, so, you know, nobody had any clue what was, you know, going on. There was no uh, discipline or... Um, any kind of support or, um, anything. So I was just kind of left to my own, you know, devices and my peers, you mm-hmm. know, and so, and then, you know, other drugs came along too, but I, but I did quit pot, which was good. Cause I, I think pot is equally as bad as those drugs because it just kind of makes you paranoid. And it, th- th- I think they were spraying a lot of stuff in it, you know, no the, herbicides?
0: And, yes, yes, something yeah. in it.
1: it would make you weird and crazy. and
0: It certainly turns some people into blobs. I mean, they kind yeah. of, can easily lose all ambition for doing anything if they're just sitting there, you know, navel-gazing and listening oh, to, right. to a record or something. <laughs> um, well, then how, how did you wind up moving into taking an active role in, in this burgeoning uh, punk scene here in, in Philadelphia? Oh, okay. Um,
1: I believe I started going to the Hot Club in 11th grade. This would have been like 1978, 79. I started seeing a lot of cool bands, uh, local bands. And then I, I, you know, fortunately met up with this kid named Cordy Swope who ended up playing in Ruin years later. But I met him at a party in uh, Bryn Mawr and we just hit it off like like that. We just, you know, started talking about the Rolling Stones and all these cool bands and... He, I believe, lived out in the Villanova area, and he I, he he may have been going to Radnor High School, and he he knew these other kids who went to um, that school, Radnor High, and that's how. Uh, I think he asked asked me to jam with him and his friends, and he knew he was all friendly with uh, Ch- uh, Chuck Meehan, who was pretty in, integral in that, that whole scene. So I, I, you know, started hanging out with these kids from like the Wayne area and uh, Radnor. We started playing in uh, a little band, and it, you know, we were in, into the jam, and you know, and I, and I think I was the one who brought everybody, everybody to the hot club to see, you know, see the Blood of Sparrows, mm-hmm. and and they were doing the 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 Perry Mason theme at the time, so we decided to do the Get Smart theme, you know. <laughs> Which which we thought was a pretty cool thing to do. And what was this band called? That band was called the Ecstatics, mm-hmm. and we were trying to get a gig at the hawk Club, but we really didn't know who to who to talk to. Um, there was this one one character there who kind of acted like he was like a a, a booking agent, but he just kind of you know led us down the wrong path. So eventually, uh, Bobby Startup of all people. Uh, got us our first few gigs at, at, at the Hot Club and we opened up for the Speedies who were like a power pop group from New York and we opened up f- for the Mutants from San Francisco which which they were kind of high profile gigs because they were on like a, a Saturday night you know and I was and it was really cool at at the time I had this uh, girlfriend Meg who was uh, the, uh, the younger sister of Paul Ebald's who was in uh, The Little Gentleman mm-hmm. And it was pretty cool having her there, you know, with me being my high school girlfriend at the hot club, you know, know, taking pictures, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And were you doing mostly
0: original songs as as well as the the cover song, or were you mixing covers in there as well? We had uh,
1: a lot of covers and a lot of originals. I remember we did uh, a monkey song, we did Pleasant Valley Sunday, um i think we did a herman's hermit song but in our own way mm-hmm. and the band was kind of like had a little prog edge to it and we did go into a studio and record some songs that are long lost that weren't all that good and so
0: you don't have any no copies of the songs or i no do have a live
1: a live tape that we did at, at the Haw club with, and i think it has the get smart theme on it mm-hmm. and i think i do have a, a cassette of that tape somewhere around no one's wanted to do something with this uh nah, I mean, it, it wasn't any it wasn't really of any kind of value it wasn't okay. any wasn't any good actually it was yeah. it was horrible to be quite okay. frankly i think you know the best song out of it was that live v- version of uh you know the get smart theme mm-hmm. if anybody wants to put that out <laughs> right. did the band did you the
0: band identify yourselves as punk new wave or
1: just kind of you know work in that I think we were we were trying to go for like a mod um, look, you know, or we were trying to be more. I guess it was we weren't punk like, you know, like the Sex Pistols or anything, or the other you know the one punk band from uh, Philly, the Warm Jets, had a real a real punk sound. Now we weren't trying to go for that sound as more of like maybe like power pop. I guess I guess we were kind of a. a like a power pop band, mm-hmm. you know what I mean,
0: and then what led to the demise of the band?
1: well, a couple things led to the demise uh, the first thing was the hot club closed around May of nineteen eighty, and then uh, around June of nineteen eighty was when high school graduation was, and people were going off to college or you know moving and i was um I was I was going to go to Berkeley College of Music, and I think I, I had to go uh, go to some kind of summer program there. So I, I I left the band, and I think they got this other kid uh, Jeremy to take my place, who who I think I sold some of my drums to, and they became a band called No No Milk, and they and they started playing at the club that formed after the Hot Club which I forget the name now. In fact, Uh, you might know it. I don't, but... Not the Kennel Club, but... um. Some other club on Chestnut Street. Not... uh, I forget. But it was a pretty famous club that existed. The Love Club? No, I forget. But anyway, so... So when I... I moved to Boston during the summer of
0: 1980. You're talking about Love Hall? Or a different place? No, it was a different club. But... Well, I guess it doesn't matter We'd-
1: yeah so I I moved to Boston in the summer of 80 and like I I was a- already reading about all these groups from that area like I was reading you know B- uh, bomb magazine and blitz magazine and I I, I read about uh, the liars and uh, la peste and groups like that so as soon as I got to uh, to to Boston the first thing I did was you know try to find out where this club was called the rat that had all these cool bands and you know back back then there was no like worldwide web or internet so you had to sort of ask around so i just saw some guy on the corner that looked like uh like he'd know the rat (laughs) yeah like this guy looked like uh, the guy from the cars Mm -hmm. and he told me he was in this band called the paytons who you know, turned out, recorded all this great stuff that, you know, never came out. And he told me, oh, yeah, my band's playing at this place called The Rat. And that's how I, you know, found out, you know, how to, you know, uh, get there. You know, he actually, like back then you had to, you know, somebody actually had to write down how to, you know, get to this club. There was no, you know, Google map or anything. You know what I mean? So I you know I, I just you know found out where these few clubs were in Boston and started seeing bands like like The Liars and there was this uh, a punk band called The Stains that had a record out and so so while I was at Berkeley, I met Amy Mann who you know later on became kind of famous and we we formed this little band called the Young Snakes.
0: So you were in a band with Amy Mann? yeah as, as,
1: as soon as I moved, moved to Boston I, I meet Amy Mann at berkeley college of music and you know she i didn't know who she was and i just knew i mean she just looked cool she had like a punk kind of a haircut and was pink and i'm like wow this girl's cute like she would look good in a band and i asked her if she was in a band she's like no but my friend and i like write songs and she had, you know somehow we ended up you know jamming and playing. did you
0: date or just the- oh
1: no it was you know i think she had a, a boyfriend at at the time and we just became friends and started playing playing some songs in this little practice room in Berkeley College of Music. And it, was, it wasn't punk. It was more like, you know, talking heads, kind of quirky, like weird stuff. It wasn't that good, you know. And then I, you know, since I, I had so much experience at age 18 playing at the Hot Club and all these clubs, I had the genius idea to, you know, make a little cassette of our few songs and hand it to this guy that owned this club called The Underground and um amy mann had never played in any any band before she never played in any clubs and i was the guy that you know got her off the ground and started playing in clubs but of course she'll she'll never say that it was all her yeah yeah. you know but so we you know we started playing out and you know we started opening up for bands like you know the delta five and you know people Mm -hmm. like like that and uh was you know we ended up opening for like the more like uh, no wave kind of bands. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, like Pat Place. What was that band called? Uh, not not the Contortions. Uh, uh, the Bush Tetras. Mm-hmm. Groups like like that. And meanwhile, Corey Swope, uh, he moved to uh, to Boston in the fall of 1981, and he formed he, he joined this rockabilly band called the Alley Beats. And so I, you know, re- reconnected with Cordy, and I was I was playing, I believe, still with uh, the Young Snakes or this other band called the Insteps, and they those bands kind of fell apart. You know, the 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 guy from the Insteps, Richard Mason, moved to Philly, and he formed a band called uh, Red Buckets, and then. Um, I was asked by Cordy to join this uh, rockabilly band, the Alley Beats, because their, their uh, drummer left. And that band was al- already falling apart. So I, I think I'm, I'm, I might have done a couple gigs with them. And that's around the time when um, Negative FX formed and the whole hardcore scene all of a sudden they exploded. Like all these bands just started playing and it just happened.
0: Yeah, it was, well, we must talk about this then. Um, Negative Effects record is a uh, to to me is one of the seminal US hardcore records. I mean there's there's a thousand records that came after it that sound like it right. to this day. You know, kids formed bands in 2015 and it sounds like Negative Effects. Right. Uh, so how did this how did this come to be? The band's come together and then that, you know, sound be the sound that you presented?
1: Uh I guess it was more like yeah, well, I, at the time this was around like the fall of 1981 when there was this uh, band called SSD SSD Control mm-hmm. were like the first i guess hardcore band that you know started to form their own own shows and around the same time all like all the college radio stations started to play like a, a lot of this discord stuff like you know minor threat and black flag so it all it all kind of happened all at the same time and this and this uh, store, uh, New, uh, Newberry Comics, were you know started to sell like these real inexpensive uh, hardcore EPs where you would get eight songs mm-hmm. on one EP for like two dollars, which yeah. was a good value. So I remember you know buying like you know the first SOA EP for you know two two dollars, and there was you know maybe twenty five copies of them, and mm-hmm. you know and I just bought one and. You know, Two billion, we, but several. Yeah, yeah, I mean, nobody knew, like, the, yeah, yeah. anything, you know. And then, so these, you know, little hardcore shows started to form. And then uh, there was the, um, a lot of college radio started to have these hardcore shows. And, you know, Choke from, from Negative FX had his own show, uh, The Faster Than You Show. And then, I believe... You know, one day, this was like probably during, uh, you know, the winter of 1981, Cho calls me up and he starts to talk about this band, Negative FX, that he wants to form. And um, I guess he knew that I was a good drummer and I had a practice space. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one day he brought these other two guys over and we just plugged in and just started to play. And that's how it it just kind of sounded like a loud, like a, a cacophony of hardcore, you know. And were you into
0: you were into these sounds then? You know? Yeah, yeah.
1: I I was kind of like it was like a real kind of you know trans transformation. You know, I was really into this. Like it was it was all new. It was, it was like hardcore for me was sort of like the first. It was like punk rock for for kids that you know that you know weren't old enough to have been you know around during like, you know, 1977, it was, it was for like the younger brothers of the kids Mm -hmm. who were, you know, listening, you know, to the Ramones in in, in, in 1977. So hardcore was for like the, you know, kids my age that were like 18, uh, 19, 20 years old, you know, in in 1981, it was like, it was like, it was like, it it, it was kind of like the you know, second wave of punk, I guess. Mm-hmm. It, you, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Did you feel that the, the people who were into hardcore were defining themselves away from the earlier generation of punk? That it was, you know, trying to define itself as a movement at that time?
1: Yeah, uh, definitely. I think they were, you know, trying to do their own shows and, you know, uh, design their own flyers and do everything themselves. And I don't think they were trying to uh, imitate. I th- oh, Actually, I think, what I think they were, you know, kind of trying to sound like a lot of the other bands that were already out there, like, because I remember you know, the first few um, negative FX songs that I kind of wrote were just sort of like imitations of like a minor thread or a SOA song just like rewritten or mm-hmm. changing the words, you know what I mean? But it just happened all the, you know it was like the whole idea of like these Discord people you know, making their own 45s and sleeves and mm-hmm was all handmade and I think I was going to art school at the time and it was like really cool to learn how to, you know, design flyers and, you know, paste everything up with uh, letters and everything. Mm-hmm. Did you leave
0: Berkeley to go to art school?
1: Yeah, I, see, I had quit Berkeley to play with Amy Mann and The Young Snakes and at, at the time, you know, Berkeley was a very jazzy orientated school and I, at the time I, I wasn't really into jazz back then a whole lot, I was more into punk and new wave But, you know, now I listen to more jazz, but back then I was like, yeah, I want to be in these punk bands and play in these clubs and make a record, you know? Yeah,
0: well, it's a lot more, you know, sort of exciting and vibrant for a young person, the the, the chaos and the movement and all that. Yeah, yeah. um, So talk about the the negative effects... um, you released an LP, but there was no there was no EP. Usually, there's there's a an EP preceding an LP. Right. 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 Like what? How did the, how did this come to be? And I believe there was a bit of a delay then, also from yeah. the recording the records that was released.
1: Yeah. See, at at the time, I was I was buying up all these Discord EPs and you know touch and go stuff, and and they all had this little uh, insert in them with all the bands' addresses and names. So. I decided you know after we kind of got a a, i guess maybe eight songs or so down i plugged in this you know radio shack cassette player in in the the basement where we practice with two you know two microphones hanging from the ceiling Mm -hmm. and i just re recorded our whole set you know us playing live on on this uh, uh, uh cassette tape and you know back then that you know bands were just trading you know cassette tapes amongst themselves so I had, you know, duplicated maybe 10 of these Negative FX uh, cassettes. So this is a demo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I I made this flyer with, you know, the hand-printed lyrics, Mm -hmm. which I I, kind of wish I still had. I I don't have it, but I I, I remember I sent one to the guy from Iron Cross. I sent one to the uh, Discord guys. I sent one to the Necros guy, you know, hoping they would maybe re release it or we could do a gig with, with those guys. And mm-hmm. Did you get reaction
0: to, to the tape? That you sent yeah.
1: That? I remember, you know, trading it with this one band from the process of elimination EP, this band, violent apathy. And he sent me this cassette tape of them, which, which was great, which I, I, w- I wish I still had. Cause I don't think a lot of their stuff came out. And I remember trading it with some other group, uh, I forget uh, the group that did uh, America's Power uh, something Youth. I think <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of youth at yeah, the time. Yeah, get the name, but yeah. So it you know word kind of spread about negative effects all through through this one tape. You know, and I was. And this is
0: prior to live
1: performances. This probably could have been around the same time, or yeah, could have been prior. Maybe like a month before our, our first gig in March of 1982 with um with SSD i think it was uh, government issue and SSD and double o mm-hmm. so yeah it was prior to that and then i think we went in the recording studio in april um of 82 and re re recorded our whole set at the time and i was hoping you know to put out you know that you know somebody was going to put you know something out because at the time i didn't really know how to put any any kind of vinyl out, I didn't know how to how to, how to do it,
0: otherwise I would have done it. So this recording session was on your dime, you know, with no no label anticipated. You you paid to, uh, to have it recorded. I think, I don't know
1: if I paid, or, 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 the, or group, the whole band, yeah, I don't the know band, if, yeah. if either the whole band paid for it, or Choke paid for it, but it wasn't all that expensive. You know, I think we all could have chipped in for it, maybe $20 each at the time, you know what I mean? And... Nobody really had any kind of plan of what was going to be done, and when we recorded the tape, the, um, the you could make like a dub, like this, you know, reel-to-reel dub of, you know, one song that y- you would give to uh, the local radio station. Mm-hmm. So I remember, you know, making a a dub of just, you know, uh, one song was like a, a minute long, and do you remember what song you you chose? Uh, it could have been the few, the proud, or uh, I think it was the the few, to pr- the proud, because they were it was actually being played on uh, WERS, which was the uh, the radio station. Choke was uh, de- DJing for, and he had a show there, so he he may have been playing it. So it actually became like a a, a radio, like a college hit, even though we didn't have anything out at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, so yeah, there was no clear. There was no uh, label. I think there were, the the only other label was Modern Method that made a, a compilation of, of these Boston bands, and I don't know why we weren't included. There might have been some like I don't know bad blood or something. Yeah, there's always you know? some shit. Like Who that. knows? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, nothing happened to the tape. Um, you know, had I known now, you know, how to actually manufacture a, a forty-five, I would have done it. You know what I mean, but nobody really knew a whole lot of of anything, and we played a couple more shows. We did a show in May of '82 with the with the Bad Brains, and then we were supposed to do a show in June with Minor Threat. And then Choke got into like this uh, mosh pit thing where he you know broke his leg,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we had all these gigs planned, and Choke you know decided not you know not to do the gigs when he. When all he could have done was just kind of sing in, into a mic, you know, hovered over a mic with yeah. his broken leg, which would have kind of looked cool, but but he he liked to kind of like jump Probably, around, yeah, man. Yeah. But you know, I I thought it would have been, been cool just to have him like sing like this with a broken leg. You know what
0: I mean? Yeah. Now you didn't play that many live performances, right? As, as Negative Effects?
1: Nah. I w- I wish we did. We didn't we didn't go on tour like a lot of the other groups did. Like. You know, like a group like Black Flag, they were, you know, they would just pile into a, band, a van and just play all over the place. You know, we, you know, we never did anything like like that. We we, we were supposed to play out of town with uh, in Worcester, which was like a little town outside of Boston with the Undead, but that gig got canceled. And then I think when so after this thing happened with Choke, you know, all these gigs got canceled. And then the band kind of fell apart you know during the summer and then i i i don't think i had a place to live so i just kind of went out to san San francisco to visit a friend and i remember going to all these clubs there like like the tool and die club and i i saw like mdc there and you know uh, i think minor threat came out there and black flag was playing out there it was it was pretty cool that whole scene you know, to be in some other area, you know, <laughs> yeah, seeing... see how they do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I came back to to Boston, I believe in the fall of '82, and that's when the band sort of s- just started to get back together. And we did a gig in. Um, we opened up for the Misfits, and then I don't know what happened. You know why? You know nothing happened with 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 the tape, and then I guess. Our final show was in March of '83, opening up for Mission of Burma. You played with some amazing bands during a very, you know, yeah, yeah. a
0: very finite number of performances. You could play with some fucking fantastic bands.
1: Yeah, I mean, even though we only played out a few a few times, it was pretty cool, you know, to play with all those great bands. And then I don't know why the band fell apart. I guess I don't know what happened. You know, some kind of disagreement, or I think Choke, you know, wanted to form some other band. And he formed um, the band that came after. Was it Neg- Last, Rite? yeah, yeah, okay. uh, Last Rites? Yeah, yeah, Last Rights, And then they only played out a few times. And then um, I think the Negative FX album didn't come out until maybe a couple years later when uh, Curtis from Tang uh, put it out on Tang. I think it was he put it out maybe in 1985 hmm so I'm glad yeah, that's,
0: that's number I think it's like tang number five so it's really early on yeah yeah yeah
1: so I I mean I didn't he never contacted he never asked me for any of my like in, input or anything but I didn't really like the idea that they used Char, uh, Charles Manson for yeah well the that, was, that
0: was one of my questions I mean the the, the record cover is very iconic in part because it uses a very iconic image that was already infamous prior right. to putting, you know, your logo over Charlie Manson's head, right, right, uh, and then you have got the Manson girls and, and so forth on the back. Who then that was Tang's? Uh...
1: I guess it was a uh, you know Tang and Chokes' I- idea that that would be like a, sh- a shocking punk rock cover, but I I, I didn't ag- agree with it because they were like hippies and they were in, into drugs and you know killing people, and I thought it would have been a lot cooler just to have a picture of of the band or like a dog you know jumping over a, a flower or something <laughs> I like, would have liked to sing that
0: dog jumping over a flower or like a- anything but <laughs> the, the flower Charles- jumping over a dog
1: yeah or like anything but Charles Manson who wasn't really a great guy I mean I don't really know anything about you know I'm not into like the negativity of that whole thing but I guess it, I guess the name you know negative effects yeah. and you know the negativity of the Charles Manson family and you know, murdering babies is uh, a shock value. Thing. The cover probably worked to to the
0: advantage of, of selling their record and drawing people's attention to it because it is, uh, I mean, the image is, is so iconic that I think people's yeah. attention is really drawn to that. Right, right. So I guess, I guess I, in a way it probably worked for you even if you weren't pleased with, you know, what how yeah. you were being represented on there. Yeah. Uh, and then was there, I don't think there was an insert inside of it or was there because the, I have no. a record in... It seems like all the credits and stuff are written on the back but there was no insert with lyrics or anything inside.
1: No, that that didn't happen till um a long after when it got reissued. I think overseas some guy put it out in uh, Belgium and he put like a little like a poster with like a, a picture of the band and uh, the lyrics. Was that a for in a CD version or an LP? Version? That was an LP version. Okay. It came out I think on the Reflex label. Okay. So, you know, but no, it, it never had an, an insert at all. And then the, it may have come out with colored, I think Tang put it, you know, colored vinyl editions of it, which which had an insert of just, like, all the other Tang artists on there. Mm-hmm. But it never had any kind of, like, lyric sheet or anything. Okay. Okay. You know. So
0: maybe talk a little bit about uh, Choke, who who I guess came to more prominence later with right. with slapshot and became sort of a controversial figure with hockey sticks and yeah, uh, you know, certain people reacted to the perceived violence that that, right. that he was
1: putting out into. So what was what was he like? I mean, you know, when I knew Choke, um, he was going to Emerson College as uh, some kind of communications guy. He had a, a radio show at the time. And, you know, um, I just, I never really hung out with them, you know, as a, fr- you know, we weren't like friends, like we were, we would hang out, we would just played in the band and...
0: No hockey playing?
1: Nah, and like, I didn't really know that, I didn't really know that band Slapshot because I think I had already moved out of the area by the time Slapshot came around, you know, like, I had, um, after Negative FX, um... And it, when that ended, um, I kind of dabbled around Boston. I played in this group called the Oysters that were on Tang. I, I was in that band for maybe six months, but we never made any recordings. And I did a tour with uh, the FUs, who became the Straw Dogs. I did as you know one tour with the uh, with the Straw Dogs that were they were more like he- heavy metal. Mm-hmm. So that was like in '87, and then I, I believe I moved out around that time, and th- that was it. And I played in, I pl- I did play in the Liars on and off from like '84. I did a couple tours with them, '84, '86, and '88. You know, which which at the time, I mean, even now, I I kind of you know preferred that that kind of that kind of music over hardcore because it was more you know more musical and. More. Did you feel that hardcore kind of played
0: itself out by
1: a certain Oh, point? yeah. Like, I got kind of kind of bored of it after a while. Hold on for a second. Or, actually, let me just pause this for a while.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. We, uh, we are back. We had a brief pause because photographer Karen appeared. Um, I believe we were talking about Choke, uh,
1: formerly known as Jack Kelly. Right. Um, exactly. So, yeah, I think punk did kind of play itself out because it was, you know, really limited. And a lot of the people that were in bands... Had had never played in a in a band bef, uh, before. They didn't weren't that good, I guess, on their instrument. Um, there weren't too many. wasn't many chord changes or uh, melody involved. I mean, there were some groups that were a little more melodic, like that song. You know, B- uh, Bad uh, Bad Religion by Bad uh, Bad Re- Religion has some kind of like power pop edge to it. Mm-hmm has a little bit of melody in it, but I was more into melodic stuff. And I think a lot of the hardcore stuff was, you know, was good for like a year or so. And then it, what happened was a lot of the bands, I kind of remember to this day in in 1984, um, Motorhead played a show with um, some other punk bands. And that was like the defining moment, I believe, of when a lot of the hardcore bands became heavy heavy metal. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the bands like SSD and the FUs and Jerry's Kids or whoever—they all started to slow down. Yeah, that's usually the, all the bad records that nobody wants yeah. to think about
0: today. Is when these bands went metal at the time. Right,
1: they all kind of slowed down and started playing these sort of like heavy heavy metal riffs and. Yeah, so that's kind of when the hardcore thing ended and the heavy metal thing started. Mm-hmm. Were you on board
0: with the the heavy metal at all?
1: A little bit. I like I liked Motorhead. Um, you know, I did play in that Straw Dogs band. They were all they were probably better than the FUs. We were doing stuff like "Tie Your Mother Down" by the by Queen, I think. Stuff like that. I remember we did a gig with. Um, uh, the meat men who went sort of like glam rock in like 1987. <laughs> yeah, they went some know. peculiar directions. It was really weird stuff. I think even Black Flag kind of went sort of like heavy metal or like they got real slow or, or like flipper or something. Yeah, yeah. You know? So, yeah, I think it played itself out pretty much. And I think it was good for like a short amount of time, which is really all it was, you know, And yeah, And
0: it. yet, 2015, there's still... Hardcore, you know, there's still yeah. hardcore punk uh, now in, in various uh, forms and, and, you know, for a lot of young people it's still really vibrant, or a lot of, not even necessarily just young, but still a very vibrant scene. What, what do you think that the appeal is uh, to, to people today, you know, going forward past the
1: time that you recorded this record, for for this scene now? I think, you know, 30-something years, years later, I guess a kid today that's, you know, maybe 15 years old can you know, look at that stuff on YouTube and say, hey, I can do this too. Like, I can form my own band and pick up a guitar and learn a couple chords or, you know, bash out a a hardcore drum beat and form my own band in the garage with some friends after school and, you know, rebel against high school and society Mm -hmm. and make flyers and have my own gig. And, you know, it's all about, you know, doing it, you know you know doing it yourself like the like the punk rock attitude of you know forming your own band you know making your own flyer your own shirt you know designing your own stuff you know making your own cassette tape or album or you know uh, 45 and you know handmade right. doing doing it yourself we, we touched on this a bit
0: earlier uh but having played on this really seminal record negative effects record and then it has these huge reverberations beyond the, the really limited time that, right. that the band performed uh, I read on the internet that no effects took their name from negative effects and then I believe the band Citizens Arrest the New York hardcore band from yeah. the 90s took their name from probably even other bands right. Was that so for song
1: me, that we did Citizens Arrest yeah
0: yeah Citizens Arrest I think is where the, the band yeah. got their name um uh, so for you, uh, you know, in looking at these things maybe on the internet or in other places, like how does it affect you looking at the ripple effect of this this thing that
1: you recorded back in 1982? Um, yeah, it's it's weird because there was some album that, that came out of um, all these bands from overseas. It was a, a, a Negative FX compilation tribute album with all these bands and there was a band... There was a band from I think Australia called nailed Down that, oh, that. made an album that had a, a couple negative fX songs on it so i guess I guess it kind of, you know kind of meant something to somebody and i mean but at at the time i was I was doing it I wasn't really you know thinking about anything like that I was you know nineteen years old you know going on twenty and I believe I was you know having a hard time i was you know living in uh, boston by myself i didn't have any any kind of family support i was kind of miserable and that was like uh i guess a relief for me to play in this band and you know you know bash out these songs and that was it and i didn't have any hopes of like you know making money or being a star. I mean, I was I was happy just to you know be able to open up for a, a government issue because mm-hmm. at the time I thought they were great and yeah absolutely you know the guy in the band what was the name the lead singer guy uh, uh, tap
0: who yeah, George Tap wasn't it
1: or stab or uh, stab, John yeah. stab yeah, I forget I said, yeah, his
0: yeah yeah sorry sorry I was thinking of yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah John stab or I don't I don't remember his name
1: but he was kind of really cool like he was he had like you know you know kind of long hair and he wore like these really cool clothes and he he was he was kind of like a like a hardcore star in a in a way and you know i thought you know i i i thought government issued that ep was like kind of psychedelic hardcore cuz it was really like uh reverbed, had like mm-hmm. a, a, like a ton of reverb on it and it was kind of echoey and you know it was it was like a, a, a kind of like a, a, a psychedelic hardcore 45 you know what i mean mm-hmm. i never heard anything like it and, yeah. I, and i was just so happy like wow i can't believe it we're opening up for a government <laughs> issue and i remember you know making this flyer and i was like wow this is cool and you know you know making xerox copies and you know flyering them around you know yeah yeah
0: so, they, they played i think the second ever show that i ever went to i guess which would have been in either late 87 or early 88 so it's, you know, huh. clearly some years after you would have seen yeah it, yeah but, yeah, uh, yeah government like, issue yeah Legless Bull, I think it was called. <laughs> yeah, they had that EP, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're we're running out of time, so we're gonna we're gonna finish up. But there was something I wanted to ask you about. Uh, what I knew you for uh, another project that you did right. uh, separately from this, not ever connecting the two, is I have uh, compilations that I think that you put out of Philly Soul band. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so I've had those for years, and never knew. Oh, what was the drummer of Negative Effects my? You know, one huh. of my other passions, hardcore. Oh, wow. You know, had a hand in releasing these. But this was this your project? These these releases?
1: Yeah, like I I was always in. Even as a child, I mean, that's pretty much what I grew up. You know, listening to on the radio was uh, Philly Soul, like the you know the Delphonics and the Intruders and groups like like that. So I was always into that sound, and you know, later on in life, um. When I was uh, releasing like, you know, garage rock stuff, I started, you know, putting out this really obscure uh, Philadelphia soul music and I would, you know, track down these old groups and, you know, try to find uh, producers who had tapes and, you know, trying to find all, all these really lost songs you know how many of those uh
0: cds did you release there was maybe like 15 of them okay yeah i have a handful and i know that i bought them probably directly from you via mail uh but i was so excited when those (laughs) things came out because it was not only was it sold but it was from philadelphia and you know these are the sort of like mostly never was type bands that you otherwise wouldn't hear right right. but i think in in more recent years have been mined by like, Numero Group right. uh, would put out these compilations of, you know, a, a certain label from, you know, Tennessee right. and all the stuff that they released. And it, it seemed to kind of go in a similar, similar vein to that. Like, here's all the shit that you didn't hear. They right. could have easily,
1: you know, some of the stuff easily been a hit, but it never went anywhere. Yeah, because a lot of people just think, oh, yeah, Philadelphia was just all, you know, Gamble and Huff, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, it. the sound of Philly. But th- th- there were all these, uh, you know, producer guys that existed like 10, you know, 10 years bef- before then that put out a lot of stuff and a lot of stuff never came out. Like they didn't have the money to put it out. And I mean, there's you know, tons and tons of stuff that, that's out there that just no one's ever heard, which is a lot of it's really great stuff. And it's really popular overseas, even still.
0: What, are there certain countries that gravitate towards this? Like Japan or Germany
1: was you know, what would come yeah. to mind. Like England is, you know, they've always been into really obscure soul records, even you know during the '70s and, and, and '60s. Right, looking for the northern
0: soul, like the yeah, you know, the, the unheard 45 to play, and all that.
1: Right, there's a lot. There's a whole subculture of like you know, uh, Northern soul DJs and clubs and people in Japan are are more into these like slower kind of ballads Mm -hmm. and other countries like Austria has like a scene, Uh, Belgium, you know, all these countries like Spain and Italy have all these little subcultures of like soul clubs and Mm -hmm. DJs. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of people that are like really into these obscure soul groups and stuff. Are you still actively releasing these? Well, yeah, but not on a CD form anymore because nobody's really buying CDs. So mm. I'm doing a lot of these uh, digital download things, where people can download like a four-song EP for a dollar ninety-nine on iTunes, which is cheaper than buying a CD for nine. You know. Ten bucks or whatever it is. Do you think that there's any market for for vinyl
0: editions of these things? In, in, you know, in the wake of the boom in, in interest, re-interest
1: in vinyl in recent years? Eh, not a whole lot. I mean, you're lucky if you can sell 500 copies now of, of anything, and mm-hmm. it's real expensive to to put stuff out. And I mean, it'll cost like at least five grand to put out maybe uh, you know a thousand albums or less. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you and you just never get you know you, you don't you don't get the money back and they're hard to sell like you could slowly sell them over time so I think the way to go is maybe put out these uh, 45s that you know you know people still you know still buy singles I think that's a economical way to go
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know put like a limited edition 45 out with, yeah. with good sound quality you know
0: absolutely. Uh but I guess to sum up what what are you uh, excited about now in, in you know in music?
1: Well now like you know now that I've gotten older like you know I'm 53 years old and like a middle-aged man you
0: 53 know 53
1: mean? the new 52 so that's, right. the, that's the good news. So I'm more like I listen to like a lot of jazz now and I I teach drums and um, I got more into like more like you know bebop jazz drumming and I actually play classical percussion like timpani and And I kind of think that classical, you know, classical music is kind of like the the punk rock of its time, like like the classical composers of, you know, two or three hundred years ago were sort of like the punk rockers of now, where they were really controversial people and weird and avant garde. You know. Yeah, I guess
0: so many hundreds of years down the line, people can't really recognize that now, unless they have a, a deeper knowledge of the music, which, right, is, right. which is unfortunate.
1: Yeah, because a lot of the classical stuff is really, a lot of it was really complicated, and, you know, uh, it was like a scene all itself. In a way, it was like a kind of like, like a punk scene. Yeah, I was just re-watching
0: uh, Amadeus uh, yeah, recently, like and I think Bach. that that illustrates it uh, with Beethoven.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: or Mozart, rather. Uh You know, it illustrates uh, you know Mozart as this kind of you know crazy character. I don't know exactly how historically correct it is, but at the same time, you see this as being a a vibrant form of music that was actually causing people to become upset or to have physical reactions to, and not just like your grandpa, you know, listening to the to the radio or rich old white people going out to see the perform. It's so divorced from that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and they would, you know, they would play like I believe it was Bach who would, you know was hired by like these kings and he would play in their courts and you know he would they were hired by churches to just play uh uh, concertos and um it was real kind of gothic i guess like the goth scene maybe like started from that like these you know gothic church organs and you know yeah yeah um super
0: hey well thank you very much uh for talking to me you bet uh, anytime thank you Uh, take care (laughs) All right.